0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 9, beginning verse 42, and the word of the Sovereign Lord reads this way. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt, if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> the Puritan preacher and minister John Owen in his book, in his work called The Mortification of Sin, once wrote, be killing sin or it be killing you. So every month, I get a chance to meet with a group of pastors in Palmdale for lunch. Um, and these are pastors from around the Antelope Valley area, uh, some like-minded guys where we get a chance to talk, shop, and theology, and it's a time for us to get together um, and to encourage each other. It's a time for us to, to pray for each other, and it's a time for us to talk about our ministries and what's going on and, and learn you know more from one another. And, it, and really, it's a time that my theology jokes actually people laugh at because, you know, but... That's a different story, but it's a time for us to really kind of unwind and, and joke around a bit uh, because being in the ministry is really, it's very easy to get into a situation where you take yourself way too seriously and everything else around you way too seriously. It's, it's really easy to be, to be high-strung and uptight. In fact, uh, uh, being a pastor is probably the most difficult job I've ever had in my, my life, and I would think that would be the same for most pastors um, because the ministry is a very demanding job it 's not something you sign up for it 's something you 're called to, and because of that it 's really easy to allow the pressures of of life and, and everything around you in ministry to kind of get to you and again to take yourself too seriously but this particular group of pastors they, they don 't let that happen by the way, right because they joke around, they poke fun. In fact, they've even given each other nicknames, right? In fact, early on, they they gave me a nickname, and the worst part is that it stuck, okay? I mean, they don't introduce me to one another as, you know, hey, I want you to meet Pastor Sherman. They go, hey, I want you to meet Tank, okay? (laughs) Yeah, like Sherman Tank. Like, I've never heard that before in my life, right? And the thing is, I've been my whole life, right, I went my whole life without anyone really calling me that. I went my whole life without a nickname, basically. I mean, there have been people in my life who've tried to give me a nickname, like Tank or Farmer John, which is another story from fourth grade I don't want to talk about today. Okay? But, but the thing is, is they tried to give me a nickname, but it's never really stuck in, in, until now. Right? And so when I see these guys, they're like, how are you doing, Tank? It's just like the hardest thing to get used to. But this week, right, I meet these guys, and they, again, greet me as Tank. But but I took Michele with me uh, because we had some errands to run together. Because when you go to Palmdale for something, you do all that you can do while you're there, right? And so she had some errands that we had to run together. And uh, so I asked one of the pastors, okay, if I bring her along? And he's like, yeah, bring her along. And they were really, really super nice to her and polite and... They asked her questions and they invited her into part of the conversation. And it was just really cool to see my sixteen year old daughter, you know, engaging and talking about ministry and her love for doctrine and 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 really just seeing, you know, this 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 excitement for the things of the Lord with with in, in her conversation with these guys. And it was all it was all good. And it was it was a really good time until one of the pastors decided that he was gonna put me on the spot. And so what he did is he goes to Michaela and he asks her a question. He said, "Michaeli, how does your dad, how does he talk about difficult things from the pulpit? Does he just jump right in and drop the hammer on them? Or does he soften them up, you know, and, 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 and then talk to them about it? And Michele, without missing a beat, she smiles the biggest smile. And she said, well, you know, we know when my dad's going to talk about something difficult on Sunday because he looks at the congregation and says, you know I love you, right? <laughs> Yeah, and everybody had you know a laugh at my expense, and in fact, it became the running joke. You know, they're like, "Hey, that's you know, you know, that's an ugly tie." You, you know, I love you, right? You know, but well, it, it is the truth, and, and in fact, it's something that I, I said those words last week uh, near the end of the sermon because we were confronted with some important but very difficult truths, and the reason for that is this text that we've been in now for three weeks is a difficult passage of scripture. And it has difficult truths. There's some hard truths that we've had to come face to face with. Some hard-hitting realities. Like the reality of hell. Jesus talks about hell here. Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. Jesus talks about hell more than any other person. This is a hard-hitting truth that this text itself deals with. And we learned that hell is a real place. And it's, it's a, a place, a just punishment for the sins that we have. And it's a horrific and never-ending torment, and, and people that we know, and people that we love, and people that we care about and respect, will spend eternity there if they don't come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's that simple. That is the hard truth that we had to come face-to-face with two weeks ago. And then last week, as we talked about, God values every single believer, every one of them, and so should we. Even the ones that are hard to love, even the ones that upset us, even the ones that we think that, we're, that, that are just unimportant to us and that we're better than them. All of them are important to God, and because of that, they should be important to us. So much so that Jesus gives a very stern warning, a very graphic warning about causing another Christian to stumble, no matter who they are. He says we're not, gonna, we're not to cause them another Christian to fall into sin. We're not to cause them to fall into doubt. We're not to cause someone to fall away uh, from the faith. We're not to cause them to fall away from the fellowship. We are not to be the cause of them to stumble. That's what the text literally means, is we're not to be a stumbling block. And there's lots of ways that we, we can cause other people to stumble, like false teaching and false doctrine, right? Or the sin that's in our lives that people see, which is something we're going to talk more about today. But the biggest stumbling block that we tend to put in the way of other people, the biggest stumbling block that we tend to, to, to impose upon other people is the fact that we will withhold love and forgiveness. We withhold love and forgiveness even from our brothers and sisters in Christ. One of our brothers and sisters offends us, hurts our feelings, does something we don't like, or doesn't do something we expected for them to do, or they're just really just obnoxious to be around. We tend to shun them or to ignore them or to talk about them behind their back rather than going to them in an effort to make things right. We hold on to grudges. We, we, we tend to keep score. And believe me, we love grace and mercy and forgiveness as long as we're recipients of it. But sometimes we don't like to give those things. Even giving those things to those who offend us. But as we talked about... We have no cause and no right to withhold love and forgiveness from any believer. Why? Well, the reason is because we have done so much worse to God. And we deserve hell for what we've done, but Christ loved us and forgave us in spite of us and willingly died on the cross for us. And so we need to get over ourselves, and we need to love and value and serve all other brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Even the least in the kingdom. Which again is a difficult truth. Which is why I prefaced it with, you know I love you. Right? Because the thing is, as we've talked about all along, as you're beginning to see, following Christ isn't easy. Because following Jesus is about living a radical lifestyle. Which begins with the radical call to repent and believe the gospel. We're to repent of our sin and believe the truth about who Christ is, why he came, and what that means for us. And this call to believe is followed immediately by a call to discipleship, a call to follow Christ and to live radically different than the rest of the world. Following Christ, which is what this series is about, is about radical discipleship. It's about living out this radical love for God and a radical love for what God loves what God loves is all other believers. It's about living a, a life of self-denial and sacrifice, as Jesus said very clearly. If you're going to come after me, you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. You need to pay whatever price it costs to go where I'm leading you about a life of selflessness, a life of humility and service. It's about valuing and loving and serving uh, everyone, even the least important person in the kingdom of God. All of which are difficult truths. Because this radical lifestyle, from human eyes, seems impossible. Because who can live that way? Who can pick up their cross and deny themselves and follow Jesus. Who can who can love the ones that seem to be so unlovable? Who can value all other people in the kingdom above themselves? Who can live out this radical love? This seems impossible, but it's but it's not impossible. This radical. This this radically different life is possible, and the reason why it is possible, and the reason why we can live out this call to radical discipleship, is because we have been radically rescued by Christ from the hell that we deserve. And the reason why we have the ability to respond to that truth in faith is because we have had our hearts radically changed by God the Holy Spirit. The expression is we have been born again. We have a new nature. We've been radically transformed. We've been moved from death to life. We are brand new. We have a new nature. And more than that, once we trust in Christ, God, the Holy Spirit, comes to live inside of us, progressively changing us and shaping us and molding us more and more into the image of Christ, giving us the ability to follow Him and live this life. This is the radical discipleship that we're called to. And this is what it means to follow Jesus, to live out the radical transformation of our, our hearts. And this text that we have seen, that we have been in for the last few weeks, is a summary of the radical nature of what it means to follow Jesus. And as we've seen from this text, it is difficult as it has, as it has been. right? As we've seen in this text, following Christ is about a radical rescue and it's about a radical love for God and others. And it's about the truth that the call to follow Christ is a call to walk in radical purity. And that right there, brothers and sisters, is a truth that we need to come face to face with today. Now if you want, I can go back and say, you know I love you, right? God absolutely calls us to radical purity. God expects us to pursue purity. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8 says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. God expects us to pursue purity. Why? Because God expects us to pursue holiness. The Apostle Peter says, as obedient children, notice the phrasing, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. What does that mean? Don't follow your old nature, right? Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he has called you, As he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Church, I want you to hear me on this. God absolutely expects us to pursue holiness. God expects us to pursue radical purity in our lives. God expects us to deal with our sin. That's what we see in the text right here. Right? We see in this text horrific consequences for sin. And in light of that, we see a call to take radical action to deal with that sin. Because, brothers and sisters, God is calling you to walk in radical purity. Right? And believe me, this is a truth right here, just like our doctrine of hell. This is a truth that is not popular with the rest of the world. It is not popular with the rest of the world. A biblical understanding of sin and how we ought to deal with our sin is at odds with the rest of the world, because the rest of the world does not think our sin is a big deal. And the idea of having to deal with it and having to put it to death seems foolish to them. But understand, the rest of the world pushes back against this, but so does many people in the church. This is an issue even in the church. Even amongst those who claim to be believers, even amongst those who say that they have trusted in Christ, the call to radical purity for many people who claim to be Christians, this call is just downright offensive to them. If you say to other people who claim to be Christians that following Christ is a call to to pursue holiness and, and purity and to seriously deal with the sin in our lives... Many of these people are going to become outraged. They're going to say things to you like, How dare you say that to me? You're nothing but a legalist. In fact, you're a false teacher because you're someone who believes that you're saved by works. We're saved by grace, not by works. Haven't you heard the gospel? We're saved by grace, not the law. We're talking about legalism. You're talking about the law. You're talking about religion. Why are you telling me I have to deal with my sin? Who are you to judge me? I think we've heard that all too often. I believe in Jesus and that's enough. I'm not expected to pursue purity. I'm in Christ. I'm free. All things are permissible for me. I can't tell you how many times I've heard these things. Especially when, you know, when I've confronted somebody in their sin because they've come to me to talk about the things in their lives. Why are you judging me? I'm saved by grace. The law doesn't apply to me. In fact, I had one guy that actually came to my office, wanted my advice on something, and it was apparent the, the root problem in his life that he was dealing with, with was, was the sin that he is battling. And I called him to repent of his sin. I told him that's what your issue is. And you know, when he says to me, he goes, Okay, so now you're my accuser. Right? Insinuating that I am playing the part of Satan, the accuser. That I had basically no right to call him to deal with the sin in his life, because now he's in Christ. This call to radical purity is a truth that people just simply don't want to face. It's a truth that people want to ignore. But understand, people want Jesus. Make no mistake about it. Everybody wants Jesus. They just don't want the change that following Jesus brings. People want Jesus, But they want to have sex outside of marriage, too. People want Jesus, but they still want to gossip and slander and trash talk about other people. They want Jesus, they just don't want him to say anything about their sexual identity or their gender identity. They want Jesus, but they don't want to actually go where where he says to go. This, by the way, is called antinomianism. Antinomianism. It's a two-part word um, that literally means anti-law or no law. And the idea is that coming to faith in Christ means not only are you forgiven of your sins, but you can have all the blessings of faith in Christ and never have to deal with the sin in your life. It's the idea that you can walk in an unrepentant sin and be saved because the law doesn't apply to you. So who cares if my wife... You know, who, who cares if I leave my wife? Who cares, right? I'm still saved. I'm just not happy. And boy, I know one thing for a fact, that God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. Right? Who cares if she has an affair, right? She loves Jesus, and there's no guilt for anybody who, who loves Jesus. Who cares if he looks at the worst kind of pornography? He's a believer, and by the way, he's not hurting anyone. right? He's not actually like... cheating on anybody. Who cares if they get drunk every weekend all the while telling people, well, I'm a Christian, don't judge me. Who cares that he harbors hate in his heart for his neighbor because he's forgiven. Antinomianism is the idea that those who are in Christ, that there's just simply no expectation that following Jesus should produce in us a pursuit of holiness and purity. That those things are just nothing but legalism and religion. But hear me, church, this is a lie from the pit of hell. Right? Now please understand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that you are saved by trying to make yourself pure. Okay? That's, you will never hear me say those words. I'm not saying that we're, tr- that we're saved by trying to keep the moral law. I'm not, saved that, I'm not saying that we're saved by o- obeying a bunch of rules. I'm, I'm not saying that, that you're saved by anything at all that you on your own and your own strength can do. Because I firmly believe that you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But here's what I understand, is this. You and I will not come to faith in Christ until God radically changes your heart. And that's what we've seen throughout the entire Gospel of Mark from the beginning. That there are two types of people in the world. There's those who are in the kingdom and those who are not in the kingdom. There are those who believe in Christ and those who don't believe in Christ. There are people who follow him and people who don't follow him. And the difference between those two groups of people, it is not their religion. It's not their station in life. It is not their educational level. It's not where they were born. It's not who their family is. It's not how much money they had or how little money they had. It's not even the amount of evidence they've been exposed to, as we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark. The difference between those two, those who believe and who won't believe, as we've seen over and over again in the Gospel of Mark, is the condition of their heart. Those who won't believe have a hard heart of stone, and those who believe have hearts that have been supernaturally transformed by God. That's the whole point of the parable of the sower. They have been radically changed. They've been radically transformed. And if you were radically transformed so that you now love the God that you once hated, you will begin to love the things that God loves, and you will begin to hate the things that God hates. And what does God hate? Sin. God hates sin. And if God hates sin... If you've been born again, you will likewise begin to hate sin yourself. And this transformation will begin to work itself out in your own life progressively. That actually is the point of what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 6. In fact, turn with me there. Romans chapter 6. Hopefully you've kind of had a head start on that. Now, it's a long section here, so please bear with me. But it really bears very heavily on the things that we're talking about today. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and I'm not putting it up on the bulletin up here because I, I didn't have the text ready. So you'll have to look in the Bible or just listen to the sound of my, my voice. Verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Or in other words, since grace, the grace of God is so awesome and covers so many sins, and since our sin is like the, the, the canvas on which God paints His grace, and that our sin is the backdrop for grace, and because our sin shows the contrast and how awesome and amazing God's grace is, shouldn't we go on sinning so that people can see clearly God's grace all the more? That's kind of the philosophy of the antinomian. The, the worse I am, the better God looks, is the kind of idea. Right? That's the question they're asking. What should we say then? If Are we to continue in sin so grace may abound? And I want you to notice the answer. Paul says, by no means. Now, when we read that in English, if there's an understatement in the Bible, that's probably the top three, because the Greek is much more emphatic. It could be better said, heaven forbid, right? Or there's no way in the world for that to happen, right? It's emphatic, by no means, And notice what he says. How can we who died still live in it? Salvation is a radical transformation. And He says, "Do Do you not understand that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We were spiritually dead. Our hearts were hard as stone. But now we've been raised a new life. We've been born again. We've been radically transformed. And then he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, those who love their sins do so because they're enslaved to it. Paul says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. If there's a a verse in the Bible to underline, you might want to underline that one. For those who have died have been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But for the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not, in verse 12... Therefore, in light of all of that, sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let it possess you. Don't let it reign over you to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as sin of, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God As those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you were not under the law but under grace. Here's the, the point. You're not just saved from the penalty of sin. You're saved from the power of sin as well. You're not just saved from the penalty of sin, you're also saved from the power of sin over you. And the expectation is, since you've been set free, since you have a new nature, that you would no longer be a slave to sin, but rather you would be a slave to Christ. And as such, you would pursue holiness. Why? Because God is holy. And you would pursue purity, because, because God is pure. And you would deal with the sin in your life and take it seriously, because God takes sin seriously. You see, for God, sin is not a laughing matter. We might joke about it, right? We might condone it. We might laugh, oh, they're just, you know, they're just being silly. It's not a joke. Sin is atrocious to God. Sin is an affront to His character. Did I get that in the right order? Sin is the opposite of who God is. God is holy and righteous and just, and sin is the opposite of those things. So sin, by its very nature, is an affront, an abomination to God. Sin, in its simplest form, is is rebellion to His character. We sin because in some way we're rejecting God and His Lordship for our life. No, thank you, God. I'm going to do it my way. I know what you said, but I'm still going to do what I want to do. No, thank you, Lord. I know what you said is best for me, but I want to try this instead. That's actually our original sin. comes from Adam and Eve. And what that was is rebellion against God. They wanted to be like Him. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be Lord instead of God being the Lord. And because of that all sin, no matter how small it is, in its essence, is rebellion against the lordship of Christ. Not to mention, sin is horribly destructive to everyone. When sin entered the world, it brought with it what? Death. So Paul says, sin has brought into the world disease, and pain, and suffering, and death. And sin affects everything. It affects our bodies, our health, our families, our relationships, our minds. Our affections, our desires, even our environment is affected by sin. Sin causes friends to betray one another. Sin absolutely destroys families. Just just look at what sexual immorality, divorce has done to to, to many in our community. We all know who have families that have been destroyed because of infidelity and then divorce. We have seen teenagers who had a normal life and now they're getting caught up at a young age in alcohol and drugs and, and are in trouble. Why? Because their parents got, decided they weren't going to make it work anymore. Sin has devastating consequences. Sin destroys lives. It destroys opportunities. It even destroys your health. I think we all know somebody, at least one person, who has a chronic disease or has died as a result of a sinful lifestyle or the sinful decisions that they've made. All sin is horribly destructive to everyone. And guess what? Your sin affects everyone around you. It's not just you. That's why God takes it so seriously. And this is the reason why hell exists. Sin is the reason hell exists. Because sin must be punished. A holy and righteous and just God will punish sin. The fact of the matter is, is we all kind of instinctively know that. We all instinctively expect that. We expect for Mao Zedong to be dealt with. We, we expect that Hitler to be dealt with. We expect that the terrorists who knocked down the World Trade Center to be dealt with. Well, the just punishment for sin is hell. And that should tell you how awful and terrible and horrific sin is. And if that's not enough for you to understand that God takes sin seriously, remember that sin is the reason why Christ himself died. Christ did not die because you're lovable. I mean, burst your bubble today. Okay? He didn't die because you were worthy of that. He died on the cross because your sin was so horrible. Sin is catastrophic, so catastrophic that the son of God was slaughtered on your behalf. I've I've heard a preacher talk about, "Look at the cross. When I say the cross, it tells me how valuable I am to God." That is a man-centered theology, by the way. You look at the cross and what you should see is how horrible your sin is and the cost it took to set you free of it. The sinless, spotless lamb of God was crushed under the weight of the wrath of God the Father because that's what it took to set you free from your sin. When Jesus was in the garden and he sweat drops of blood, he was not emotionally distraught because of the physical nature of of, of, of suffering on a Roman cross. The fact of the matter is there have been martyrs throughout history who have suffered that much and even worse, joyfully and gladly and singing hymns as they're having their skin flayed off of them. Physical torture was not what made Jesus distraught. What made him distraught was the fact that he was about to drink down the full cup of the wrath of God that he had stored up for us. Christ suffered the awful and terrible hatred that God hate has for our sin. That's why he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God takes sin seriously because of the cost it took to set you free. Remember what Paul says, you're not your own, you were bought with a price. So if God takes sin seriously, then by implication then we must also That's one of the things that we see in this text. We are called to take sin seriously and walk in radical purity. In fact, look with me again, Mark chapter 9, beginning verse 43. And if your hand causes you sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You cannot read this text with a heart that's been changed by God and eyes that have been opened by God and think that God is okay with my sin. You cannot read this text as a transformed Follower of Christ and think that God is not calling me to pursue holiness and radical purity. Because notice, as we have talked about, the serious consequence of sin, it is hell. And we spent quite a bit of time talking about that already. The fact that hell is the consequence for sin should wake us up and shake us up and cause us to take it seriously. But, 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 but there's more here. Because I want you to notice the scope ...of the sin that Jesus is talking about. I want you to notice how this is structured. It's easy to miss in English. But there's three parallel lines here. Jesus says, if a part of your body causes you to sin, cut it off... ...and it's better for you to lose it than be thrown into hell. That's the essence of what these parallel lines are saying. These parallel lines have a similar but emphatic point. The only difference really between these three lines is the body parts... Notice it's the hand, the foot, and the eye. And and he did this on purpose because this is highly symbolic of all the ways in which we sin. Because we sin with our hands, our feet, and our eyes. Let me show you. The hands represent the things that we do. Things that we do that cause us to sin. It is with your hands that that you take things that don't belong to you. It's with your hands that you touch somebody inappropriately that you're not supposed to be touching. It's with your hands that maybe you strike someone out of bitterness and anger. It's with your hands that you type gossip on Facebook. It's with your hands that maybe you use your phone to look up things that you shouldn't be looking up. You see, the hands, it's a representation of all things that you actively do to sin. And then the feet represent the places you go that cause you to sin. Because there are places that people go that cause them to sin. Like for instance, a bar. Now, hear me, I'm not saying if you go to a bar, then all of a sudden that you were like automatically in sin. What I'm saying, and there are places like bars that are just sin magnets, right? Especially if you're somebody who struggles with drunkenness. Especially if you struggle with people being flirty, because that's what happens in bars, right? Right? But sin can also cause you. To walk by someone's office or cubicle just happen to say hello and flirt with that one certain person who kind of you know, makes your heart pitter-patter like your spouse used to. Or perhaps your feet like to take you to lunch to hang out with that person who wants to gossip all the time. Your feet represent where you go to sin, and then your eyes represent all that you see that causes you to sin. You see it's with your eyes that you see your neighbor's truck is nicer than yours and suddenly you become jealous and covetous of what they have. It's with your eyes that you see all the images on television or the movie screen or the computer screen or that little phone screen or even in real life that stir your heart up to lust. It's with your eyes that you look down your nose at someone who just isn't quite good enough for you. It's with your eyes that you see all the things in the world that you don't have, blinding you to all the things that you do have that you should already be grateful for. Jesus uses hands and feet and eyes because it represents all the ways in which we sin. Jesus is addressing all the ways that we sin because we should take it all seriously and not just the big things, which is what we typically like to do. I didn't steal anything. I didn't sin big, right? I didn't steal something, right? I didn't commit adultery, at least I didn't actually do anything. I'm not, I'm not actually hurting anybody. We think of those are the real serious ones. But even the little things that seem inconsequential to us, like the little lie that you told that nobody really even knows about and understands why you had to lie about it. Or, or the little glance that you gave to someone just to see if they're going to glance back at you with that right way. Or that, or that private grudge that you're nursing that you don't tell anybody about, or that jealousy that you're holding on to, or that or that lustful thought that you keep coming back to in your mind over and over and over again. We're going to take all of our sin seriously. In fact, Jesus gives us a radical prescription for dealing with the sin in our lives. Again, notice what he says. I want you to really kind of key on this text. If your hand causes you to sin cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot caused you to sin, cut it off. It is better that for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye caused you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Please notice the graphic language here. Cut it off. Tear it out. Now, please understand, praise the Lord, that Jesus is using hyperbolic language here. He's using hyperbole. This is an extreme form of symbolism. Because he doesn't literally mean to maim yourself. How do we know? Number one, the Bible prohibits self mutilation The Bible makes it really, really clear. We're not to be cutting ourselves up. It prohibits that. Number two... It's the reality that cutting off body parts will not keep you from sinning. Right? Cutting off body parts is not going to be the thing that changes your hearts. You can cut off both your hands and both your feet and pluck out all your eyeballs and still fall prey to sin. You can be just as big a sinner as anybody that has older faculties. So, by the way, this was a practice that was outlawed um, uh, it, during the Nicene era, when they did the Nicene Creed, they outlawed this practice because there were some people that took it literally. Right? Jesus is not telling us to cut off body parts. What Jesus is prescribing, though, is 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 radical action. That's why the language is so strong here. He's saying that sin is serious, and it's such a serious issue. Right with such serious consequences that you need to take serious action to deal with sin in your life. You need to take radical action to cut sin out of your life. You need to be killing sin, as, or it will be killing you, as John Owen says. Which, by the way, is his commentary on Romans chapter 8. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, or our sinful nature, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the, of the body, you will live. Brothers and sisters, if you belong to Christ, you are called to radical action against sin in your life. You need to be killing sin or it be killing you. You need to take radical steps to cut sin out in your life. And, and it's, it's that serious. In fact, let me just translate for you how we might apply what Jesus is saying. If your smartphone causes you to sin, throw that thing in the trash and go get a flip phone so you're not likely to look at pornography. Right? If your relationship causes you to sin, then maybe it's time to end that relationship or get married. If if your friend causes you to sin and engage in gossip, maybe it's time to get new friends. Or at least preach the gospel to that friend and tell them, shut up, I don't want to hear no more gossip. If alcohol causes you to sin, maybe then you need to cut alcohol out of your life completely because you just can't handle it. If video games cause you to sin, maybe then you need to spend some, some time with your family instead. Maybe you need to take that game console and smash it and throw it in the trash. If you're new, I mean, if you're in town, if, you, if, this, if the people in this town cause you to sin because you just can't break free of the relationships you're struggling with, move. Go somewhere else. If your job is causing you to sin, then find another job. Right? That's what Jesus is basically saying. It's a call to radical action. You see, the thing is, is, we in our sin oftentimes get in situations where we think we're helpless. Well, it's just this way. I can't help it. This is where I live. This is how I feel. This is the way things are. No. We are not victims here. We're called to radical action. We need to do the things that we need to do to deal with the sin that's in our life. If that means to confess your sin, then confess it. If that means that you need to go get counseling, then go get counseling. If that means that you need to find someone to talk to and tell them about the things that are happening in your thought life, then go find that person. If that means beginning a new relationship, begin a new relationship. If that means ending an old relationship, then end an old relationship. Do what it takes. The language is very expressive and graphic here. Be killing sin or it be killing you. Sin has horrific consequences. And God takes it seriously. Which means we need to take it serious too. Which means we need to deal with the sin in our lives. But pastor, this really sounds an awful lot like legalism to me. It sounds like you're preaching work salvation to me. Again, how do you square this with the gospel? How do you you square this with what Ephesians says? For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works so no one may boast. And you are absolutely 100% right. Salvation is by grace alone. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith in Christ alone. And there's not anything that you can do to earn it. It's not something you can have by working for it. You're not not saved by obeying some rules. You're not saved by cleaning yourself up and making yourself better. You were saved by grace through faith. But hear me. If you're going to quote Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, don't stop at verse 10. Because verse 10 says, for, it connects the thoughts together. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For, right, because it's connected, because we are his workmanship, right, or his masterpiece, created, we've been created new in Christ Jesus For a purpose, what purpose, good works, which God prepared beforehand, that He's already planned for us to do, that we should walk in them. What does walk in them mean? It means that we should do them. Brothers and sisters, we are not simply saved to sit around going, yay, I'm saved. We're not simply saved so we can sit around a campfire singing, I love Jesus, yes I do, I love Jesus, how about you? We were saved by the power of God to walk in the good works that he has prepared for us to walk in. And part of the good works that he has called us to walk in is to deal with the sin in our life. Why? So that you're not a stumbling block for someone else. Remember, this is the context of this entire discussion. We're not to be a stumbling block for those people who believe and those people who might believe. It's about living a life that doesn't interfere and cause someone to stumble. We're called to be radically different than the rest of the world. We're called to walk in radical love. And we're called to radical purity, which means we're to pursue holiness. Remember, we're to be holy because God is holy. But understand... Holiness is not something you're going to fall into automatically. Holiness is something you have to pursue. D.A. Carson, probably one of the most preeminent theologians of our time, says it this way, people do not drift toward holiness apart from grace-driven effort. And if there's a phrase worth remembering, and I love this phrase, grace-driven effort. We have effort that's driven by the grace of God. God gives us the grace to do the things that we're called to do. That's kind of the idea, right? So apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We drift towards disobedience, excuse me, we, we cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. We're going to be killing sin because it is the work that God has ordained for us to do. It's the work that he's equipped us to do. God in His grace has equipped you to deal with the sin in your life. You're not just saved from the penalty of sin through Christ's atoning work on the cross. You are saved by the power of sin because you have a new nature. And because the Holy Spirit now has made His residence in you and indwells you. Again, turn with me back to Romans chapter 6. We're going to pick it back up in verse 12. If there's a a chapter to master in Romans, I mean, Romans is all good, but I mean, this one here. He says, "Let Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Notice the language there. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Sin is not your master anymore. Verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? You hear that? That right there is the call of the American evangelical church. I'm saved by grace. Don't you talk to me about the law, right? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? What does Paul say? By no means do you not know That if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, but thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching, the gospel, which you have been committed, and having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. I'm not speaking. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For you, for just for just as you once presented your members to, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members or your body as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Sanctification is that process where God is slowly transforming you and changing you. And when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things that you are now ashamed? Sin will always make us ashamed, for the end of those things is death. But, but, But now those who have been set free from sin have become obedient slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, you have been set free from the penalty and the power of sin. If there's anything that you take away from this message, of all the things that I've said, if that's the one thing that sticks in your head, you have been set free, not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. God has equipped you to begin to deal with the sin in your life. He has equipped you to do battle with temptation. He has equipped you to take radical action. You see, this is not a call to legalism and rule-following. This is a call towards maturity and growing up. Which is exactly what discipleship is. It's growing in maturity as we become progressively more and more like Jesus. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It means to grow in spiritual maturity. That's why our mission statement is to create spiritually maturing Christ followers. Now understand that we're called to radical purity, but we also need to recognize that we're just not going to be perfect at this. This side of heaven, right? Because none of us, not a one of us, are going to be completely perfect without sin. We are going to stumble at times. That's the nature of who we are here, this side of heaven. Which means this radical, this called radical purity, And this call to take radical action leads us back to a radical dependence upon Christ. We're completely and totally dependent upon Him. He says, abide in me, for apart from me you can do nothing. We're completely dependent upon Christ, which means all of this brings us right back to the gospel Because how do we actively depend upon Christ? We actively depend upon Christ by doing what he said in the beginning to do. He said to repent and believe the gospel. That's what he said. Remember, as we talked about, the Greek words for repent and believe are not past tense words. They are present tense, imperative, active, which means it's not just a one-time thing that you do and then you're done. It's something that you continue to do. We don't just believe in Christ one time ago. I'm done, I don't have to believe no more no, you continue to believe you continue to actively believe in him you continue to actively trust in him you continue to actively depend upon him which means we need to continually actively repent of our sins so when you fall into sin today what do you do? you repent and turn from your sin and continue to believe the truth of the gospel that you're saved by grace through faith you fall into that same sin tomorrow what are you going to do? You continue to repent and believe the gospel and turn away from your sin and turn towards Christ in faith in hope that He's going to save you, depending upon Him to change your hearts. And you fall into the same sin a thousand times, what are you going to do? Well, you don't certainly sit around worrying in your self pity and self loathing and self hatred because of your sin. No, you get up and you repent of that sin a thousand and one times and you continue to trust in Christ. To save you. Yes, though. Put up your guardrails to protect yourself. I don't do those things. I don't own a smartphone. I don't look at a computer unless somebody's here. I don't talk. I don't have lunch with someone who's of the opposite sex. I don't drink you know more than one beer with dinner. You know, put those guardrails up in your life. And take radical action to, to remove temptation for your life. And confess your sin and do the things that you need to do to kill the sin in your life. Right? Yes, walk in the grace-driven efforts that God has given you towards holiness because you're called to radical purity. But do all that, laboring under the knowledge that we are and will continue to be dependent upon God to transform our hearts and open our blind eyes. As we have seen with these disciples. Remember, those of you who have been through this series with us, this section it begins and ends with Jesus performing a miracle of opening someone's eyes. And so, the foundational key to this radical purity, and the key to radical love, and the key to living this radical discipleship is always the same. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. If you don't know Christ and you've never trusted Him as your Savior, and if you're feeling the weight and the conviction of your sin, and you know that you desperately need a relationship with Christ, and you know that, that, that you need Him and He's real, then repent and believe the gospel. And if you're a believer, and you know you have been saved, then you continue to repent and believe the the gospel, and pursue the radical purity that God calls you to. Repent and believe the gospel. That is how we follow Christ. That is how we have the power to live the radical life that God is calling us to. As God shows us the mirror, in the mirror of His law, when we fall short, we repent and we believe the gospel, allowing the Holy Spirit to change us more and more in the image of jesus christ let me pray for you you've been listening to the preaching ministry of pastor sherman burkhead a production of first baptist church in boron california our website address is fbcboron.org and would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of jesus christ with our community and our world